Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. On this episode, we're going to be catching up with all the latest developments from the COP27 climate talks in Egypt. And we're going to be debating the role of nuclear power in providing reliable low-carbon energy. Joining me today, it's a great pleasure to welcome back two familiar faces to The Energy Gang. Melissa Lott is the Director of Research at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hey, Ed. Good to see you. Good to see uh, both of y'all. I'm doing well. Yeah, because we also have uh, another old friend back, but in a new job, Amy Myers-Jaffe. Welcome to the show. Tell us about your new role. So I have a new role. I am the director of the Energy, Climate, Justice and Sustainability Lab at the School of Professional Studies at New York University. Very excited uh, in this new position. And uh, we will be focusing uh, on climate finance, on just transition, and uh, really looking forward to uh, continuing to work with Melissa um, and others uh, in this new capacity. Ed can see that I'm smiling really big because Amy's just down the road even more than she was before. So I'm really excited about this. This is really great news. Oh, well, fantastic. All the best with that uh, in your new job. Now, the first subject I want to talk about is COP27. This is, of course, the latest conference of the parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. COP27 is running, or I guess it ran, depending on where you're listening to this, from November the 6th to November the 18th. As we're recording, it's actually still going on. It hasn't finished yet. And so we'll have to bear that in mind as we're talking about it. But I certainly think there's quite a lot we can say already about what's been happening. Talks have been held in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt on the shores of the Red Sea. Sharm el-Sheikh, probably a lot of people will know, is a center for diving. It's a great place for tourism. And if you're going to go scuba diving to explore the coral reefs of the Red Sea, Sharm el-Sheikh's a great place to do that from. Obviously, coral reefs are... A very key issue in terms of climate change, the damage done to coral reefs by ocean acidification and rising water temperatures is definitely something that um, plays quite a big role in the climate debate. Before we get into that, though, I know neither of you went, did you? Uh, Melissa or Amy, I know you've been to COPS in the past, didn't go to this one, but you've both had colleagues who have been there and possibly still are there now as we're talking. Melissa, what's your involvement been as the Centre on Global Energy Policy? You've had colleagues there. What have, been, what have they been doing? Yes, we've had a number of colleagues who are physically there in Sharm el-Sheikh. And then also, as you know, I do this work with the United Nations and their Council of Engineers for the Energy Transition. And we had our first series of meetings, which was a hybrid set of meetings. So for the Centre on Global Energy Policy, we focused a lot of our work this year. And I know, Amy, I think you all did some of this work as well just focusing on mobilizing finance and how we can actually move money to fund clean energy infrastructure development, which is one of the themes that we're already seeing coming out from the talks and certainly one that's been there for a while. Um, How do we move money into different parts of the world, especially developing economies, low-income economies? And then also focusing in on this tension between energy security, the energy transition, and really looking at as we go through this crisis that's still ongoing, what does it mean for the transition how do we actually transition more quickly in some parts of the world? You know, what does it mean overall for the role of different fuels, et cetera? Um, and what about you, Amy? You've also had colleagues there, right? Well, Tufts Fletcher School uh, this summer, uh, myself and a team of uh, some of our uh, younger scholars did a big survey for the UN Commission on Africa on adaptation financial needs uh, for the whole continent. Uh, that was kind of a shocking exercise because it showed how in the years between 2017 and current, 
how many hundreds of billions of dollars of increased need has come to the fore just from new events or new understanding uh, of the risks facing the African continent. Um, and so the Tufts team had a official event with the African Union uh, looking at both finance and policy barriers to the more rapid acceleration of renewable energy uh, in Africa. We had a case study on Ethiopia and Kenya. We've also uh, sort of been at the sidelines talking about different things that can be done to restructure climate finance and promote more uh, available finance, making it to uh, some of these uh, low-income, high-vulnerability countries uh, that need to have assistance not only in decarbonization, I mean, they're not really huge global emitters, but also to help them with coping with the impact of climate change. Thanks for that. That does sound very interesting. So look, Melissa, what's your assessment of COP27 so far? I mean, I think COP27 has, in some ways, it's a mixed bag, like it always is. I mean, we always talk about how, oh, it's exceeded expectations in this way, and I uh, don't know how this is going to work out. And so I don't want to just, you know, repeat where you could go back to quotes I've said about COPs for years at this point. But this COP, it's the same mixed bag. Some parts of the conversation are moving forward. And so one of the most interesting announcements that I've been following is around this announcement, uh, you're talking about the $20 billion of public and private finance to help Indonesia phase off of coal, effectively. And this was modeled off the South African you know, deal that we talked about last year. There were also some big announcements around that in terms of actually signing some of the financing um, in the past few days here for South Africa to get them off coal. But I find these really practical, okay, how do we transition economies discussions really encouraging and really interesting. Other conversations are moving perhaps more slowly. And I know some of the headlines are, you know, saying, are we losing 1.5? Are we, you know, is this the year that we gave up 1.5? I find those headlines a little sensational. I'll say going back to the purpose of COP and bringing us all together to have these conversations and to move the needle forward and make sure that we are preserving time in the middle of so much going on in the world to focus on this issue so I think if we go back to the fundamental concept of COP and bringing everyone together to have these important conversations, to preserve, to preserve space in the dialogue, to actually discuss climate, what are we doing to move the needle forward, to talk about these billions and how we're going to move them to the countries that need them, um, I think that there have been some notable successes. And I will say, like the Indonesia example, which I hope we go into in a little more detail, I find extremely encouraging and interesting to look at. Amy, what do you think? Well, I think one of the more interesting things that really caught a lot of people's attention is the Prime Minister of Barbados highlighted and unveiled uh, something called the Bridgetown Initiative, which was a way of thinking about climate finance, not in the way we've done things in the past, but to think about in the context of climate change and what it means for sovereign debt and mm -hmm. Um, budgets going forward. You know, how do we rectify the fact that, you know, standard borrowing costs for a country like the United States or another developed economy runs between one and four percent? If you're a country that's experienced extreme climate events like flooding in Pakistan, or you're were very unlucky with what happened in COVID in your country. Uh, and you're having debt restructuring and you've had uh, sovereign economy really 
have setbacks, then your borrowing costs might be something like 12 to 14%. And Mia Motley and others have called into question the whole way that the World Bank and the IMF uh, identify and manage uh, the borrowing of countries going forward in light of climate change. Um, and, and that whole discussion about, you know, should I be giving a lower interest loan to a country that's really suffering from climate change compared to a wealthy country? I mean, I think it's time for that debate. And I think just to follow up on this, you know, we had a paper that came out of the Center on Global Energy Policy by my colleagues, John Elkind and Philip Benoit and others, um, talking about this idea of currency risk. And so it's this idea of financing these projects. Rubber is meeting the road. We need to build them. How do we get the money in place? And what are these risks that are not just about, oh, you have to buy a higher interest rate, but it's like on top of that, you've got this idea that if you're taking out a loan that's not made in dollars, your local currency, which is where your taxes is not actually tied directly to that. Like, how do you deal with all of that? It's really complicated. And agree with you, Amy, it's a time for some innovation. It's a time for some real practical discussions about how you get this done. Because if we don't, we know the consequences of that. And people are looking at, should something be dollar denominated? What are the other different ways? Mm -hmm. We've looked at this question of if you're a very vulnerable country in terms of climate impact, perhaps you don't even have the capacity to assess how much aid you need, right? And so does that mean you're going to get less money um, from the multilateral institutions, less money from individual lenders, countries, because they feel you can't, quote unquote, absorb the finance? And what do we have to do then um, to put those countries in a position to really help their population? So it's actually a pretty complicated uh, transaction because first we have to reform the way we think about banking in general. And then on top of that, we have to look at capacity building and how do we determine which countries get first in line uh, for assistance on climate change because a lot of the climate, global climate finance is going to places like Europe um, and other developed economies. And we really need to channel this money to places that need it most. So Amy, can we say our short response to Ed is COP27, show me the money or something like that? I don't know. Oh, I love that. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So Ed, that's our short answer. <laughs> so all of that, I think is fascinating. And as you say, it's really kind of um, significant the people are talking about these issues and that Bridgetown Initiative and so on sound really interesting. You use the expression, Melissa, this is where the rubber hits the road. This really seems like you're getting down to some very, very fundamental issues about global equity, global justice. We have this global problem of climate change. How do we decide who pays for tackling it, reducing the extent of climate change, limiting the damage it, do it does, and also who pays for the damage that it has already caused and will continue to cause in the future. This really is the hardest stuff to deal with, I think, in this whole argument. And this is where a lot of the arguments about technological innovation and what can be done with renewable energy and so on, those kind of drive themselves because we've had these tremendous advances in renewable energy and it's making this a fantastic amount of progress in many different parts of the world, becoming increasingly competitive against fossil fuels and so on. That's all great. But then there's a lot more that needs to be done. And then you get to some of those 
issues where it's not just a case of everyone can win from having a better and cleaner energy system, but actually some people have to pay costs so that other people can benefit. I thought it was very interesting then we saw loss and damage, this loss and damage question, which we talked about on the last episode of the Energy Gang, this question of how you compensate countries for the losses and the damage that they have suffered as a result of climate change. That issue was very kind of firmly brought onto the debate agenda at COP27. I think it's been a very significant kind of step forward on that. But then you hear John Kerry, who's the US climate envoy, talking about it. And he says, yeah, yeah, we're absolutely committed to doing something on this. This is definitely uh, something we want to address. But at the moment, we have no agreement about how we address it. There's this idea that there should be a facility which would make payments for loss and damage. No one knows really what that facility would look like, how it would be financed, how uh, it would make payments, on what basis it would operate. And you've heard quite a few countries coming out and saying, well, yes, there should be this thing, but we're absolutely not going to pay into it. And I noticed uh, Saudi Arabia, for instance, said that. China said that. These are Saudi Arabia, one of the world's largest oil producers. China, by far the world's largest uh, coal producer and coal consumer. These countries that are putting a lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere don't want to be part of paying for addressing the impacts of those greenhouse gases caused. You could say not unreasonably in the position of these countries because they are not rich countries. Uh, on a global scale, they're certainly not the countries that you would count as being high income overall. So what does this leave you thinking about how we resolve some of these really fundamental global equity and justice issues? I mean, Amy, I know you've been thinking about this. You've been looking at the loss and damage question. What do you think? Well, you know, the question is, you know, how are we going to function? I mean, there's, t- there's two steps to that. One is the multilateral agency part of the question. So do we have a, you know, we have the adaptation fund, we have some other climate funds that have done some progress, but do we need to restructure how we pay into and pay out to, you know, a multilateral agency? That's one, that's question number one. Um, And then question number two is, you know, there's different institutions that can have a role. So you know, what's the role of philanthropic institutions? What's the role of bilateral governments? So in green finance, green bond markets and, and project development finance, um, you know, you can de-risk certain investments by having a national development bank um, or, or a multilateral development bank come in as uh, in the financing or with guarantees. Um, but what about for an adaptation project? If I'm building a seawall, um, like, do I have to involve the insurance companies to get the payoff for that? So you have these new interest in things like debt for climate swaps um, and other kinds of sort of more innovative finance that would help you finance more infrastructure-related or improvement-related kind of programs where the benefits could be really tallied financially. We could know how many less people are suffering health consequences. We can know how much less damage we're going to get um, to infrastructure. But coming up with the sort of financial products or instruments that we're going to use, um, you know, debt for climate swaps have been used in some very limited cases, but, you know, could that become sort of more of a norm? Uh, I don't think we're like farther enough along in the discussion um, to really 
be able to say, yes, this is going to be the way this is going to be handled. And I think this is why if you looked at Kerry's statements, it was not just indicating, yes, the president and, you know, we're indicating the U.S. you know, really wants to have this discussion and we want to come to some kind of a you know, conclusion. I think closure was the word that he used, but, you know, that was that was in the statement. But then the follow on of that, you know, it was it talked about what you just said, Amy, which is but we don't know what kind of facilities and what kind of financial structure we would use to do this. What does that look like? Like, how would you actually execute it? And I mean, back to rubber meeting the road in this case, it means having that direct conversation because we are well acquainted with the data and saying that the countries that have contributed the least to this problem are suffering the worst and poised to suffer the worst in many, many, many cases. So, you know, as we move into the future, what are we going to do about that? And some of it, you know, came in the form of saying we're going to have financing flow from high income countries to low income countries as they develop. Um, which there's the whole discussion about if that promise is being kept or not, um, or not is the general sentiment, not yet at least. Um, but what is the actual facility? What is the actual mechanism that we're going to use? That's the practical discussion. And that's also where a lot of the tension exists because we can all agree that it's bad this is happening. We want to help. We want to support. There's got to be some kind of you know equity discussion around this and some actions to preserve equity in the transition but then when it comes down to brass tacks about who pays and how, ugh, you know, that's the thing we have not figured out at all. And so I think Carrie spoke actually quite directly about that. Indeed. So look, Melissa, I wanted also to go back and ask you to talk about something you said you didn't want to talk about. So you mentioned this question. <laughs> of course. Yes. Of course. Why not? Why not? Tell me exactly. now. <laughs> Those are always the most interesting Thank bits. God he's not doing that to me. Well, and I, Amy, I actually want to hear your view on this as well. Yeah. But you you kind of, um, in your overview of you know, what's, what's happening at COP27, <laughs> yep. you mentioned this question of the headlines about 1.5 is out of reach. In other words, that um, the, what you might call the stretch goal of the Paris Agreement that the world should limit global warming by the end of the century to 1.5 degrees centigrade. There has, as you say, been quite a lot of talk that that's gone now. There's no way we can get onto a path to achieve that. You were saying you didn't want to talk about that because, what, you don't agree that's right and it is still achievable? So I think one point of my frustration with headlines around, you know, 1.5 out of reach, it treats it as if it's like a binary pass-fail, like you won the soccer match or you didn't because you hit 1.5 or not. And I'm like, I study public health around all this stuff, right? Every single fraction of every single degree that we do not see Results and benefits for public health. So like 1.5 is a great target and ambition to go towards. We are still doing way better at 1.8 than we are at 2.1 than we are at 3. So to say we have absolutely failed, it's binary, we won the game or we didn't, if we hit 1.5 or not, I mean, it, it subscribes to the idea of we're already experiencing the health impacts of climate change today. I don't believe that means we've failed because we're already experiencing some of the health impacts. I mean, now the question is how quickly are we going to move towards not just committing to goals, but realizing goals? So that's another thing. So when we look at the U.S., so we've got the, what is it, 50% emissions reductions compared to 2005, and we're going to achieve that by 2030 is the NDC. That's the rough numbers on it. So before the Inflation Reduction Act, we were on track, if I remember the business as usual case, it was towards something like 25% reduction in emissions compared to 2005. With the IRA, depending on how successful you think all the carrots within IRA, you know, are at the end of the day, 
maybe we get that down to 35 or as optimistically as like 43, 44, 45%. Let's take the middle case, 40% reduction. 40% compared to 50%, which is what we said we would achieve in eight years. Yep, the end of 2022. So basically seven years. So in seven years, how are we going to fill that 10% gap? So I think we should do everything we can to try to get emissions down as quickly as possible. But I also still am going to celebrate the fact that we're not at 25 anymore. We're looking at 40%. Like that's a big jump and a big difference. And let's not forget, we were just a couple years ago arguing about whether two degrees was achievable and some parties were saying that was impossible. So I feel like if we're now saying that we don't consider two degrees good enough, and we think we could get the rest of the way, like that's progress. And the the last thing I'll say around all this is I don't think it's the most productive conversation to, you know, oh, have we failed if we do this or we don't do that? The, the point is climate change, not responding to it, not mitigating and adapting is so much more expensive than mitigating and adapting. Things get complicated because it's easy for me to say that in a wealthy country that has finance that it could mobilize if it wanted to, that doesn't have all these other confounding factors that makes things extremely complicated to actually achieve the transition. So I can say that easily here. But the bottom line is the cost of climate change, way more than the cost of the actions to mitigate and adapt to it. And so the question is, how far are we going to go and how quickly are we going to go um, down this path? And so whether we achieve 1.5 or not, I actually just want to focus on how we reduce emissions as quickly as possible in an equitable and just way. Like that's the conversation I want to have and practical steps like theoretical. I'm a modeler. I do those pathways that are so smooth and I am famous for talking about how the pathways aren't actually smooth. They're super bumpy. And that's where I want to focus in. We've got these pathways. Okay, how do we achieve the next step, the next step, the next step that put us on the overall pathway so that it's a downhill slope that we're skiing towards? I think that's a great point. And I think in particular, the point that you've both been making about every degree counts, every point one of a degree counts in terms of the impact of global warming. And I also think Amy's point is absolutely right, which is that if you'd thought about where we were 20 years ago, let's say, you know, we would have been on course for global warming of whatever it was, you know, four, four and a half, five degrees by the end of the century. People sometimes talk about climate policy as, oh, it hasn't achieved anything. And, you know, fossil fuels were 80% of the world's energy 20 years ago and the 80% of the world's energy today. And therefore, it means that all this effort hasn't really done anything. I think it is unquestionably true that we have bent the curve, the trajectory of expected future greenhouse gas emissions and therefore expected future global warming looks very different now from what it did 20 years ago, right? And I'll say on that point, celebrate the fact that our, we have bent the curve and then keep pushing hard to bend it further because the costs of not bending it further are huge. But both things, we can do both things at, at once. And I'll say, I got in a whole discussion with someone about, you know, if we don't reach 1.5, someone really prominent in the energy finance industry if we don't reach 1.5, you know, have we failed? You know, what should we do? What comes next? All that stuff. And and what if an individual country can't do its part? You know, should we shame them? Should we whatever? And I said, no, this is this is going back to the whole point of climate change. It's a global issue. We all need to like run this marathon together. And if someone is struggling, and this goes back to John Kerry's quote, like, what are we actively prepared to do? Are we going to give them Gatorade? <laughs> are we going to pick them up and carry them a mile? Like, what are we what are we willing to do? And how are we willing to do that? And we need to figure out those answers sooner rather than later. 
And I think that the Indonesia deal, the South Africa deal have shown what certain countries are willing to do and what they're willing to step up to do when it comes to moving finance into countries that are currently heavily dependent on coal and, you know, are saying, great, we want to be part of this solution, but we have practical needs in how to finance this. We got to see the money to make this happen. And so those are really interesting discussions. And a lot of those countries, these sort of future high emitting countries, are actually putting in, unlike the United States, where we don't seem to be able to get our act together, they are actually putting in carbon pricing. You know, Indonesia is studying how to create a carbon market. Um, China has just launched, maybe it needs some a lot of fine-tuning, but they've launched a carbon market, right? South Africa has a carbon tax, and they're thinking about how to reform it and what kind of program would be effective. Um, and, and these are countries that, you know, analysts would have said, oh, you'll never get a carbon price and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you're seeing it in these high coal, you know, high growth countries. And that's really impressive because that will provide India's now talking about maybe it needs to reform its pricing and think about how to go beyond a coal tax to to a carbon uh, price. So so these things are real momentum in the real world. It's not a declaration. You're really putting in the systematic um, finance structure that will actually propel more finance to be able to go and be utilized and incented. But I focus a lot on a different issue, which is this sort of free pass on declaration. So, you know, I'm a big corporation and I've made a declaration. Like, am I actually doing it? right? Big, big debate now about what the bank should or shouldn't finance and how. And then my big like pet project is studying state enterprise, which I know Melissa's looked at too, which is, you know, I'm a state enterprise. Am I pivoting? And then how do I pivot? Um, And then is my pivoting, if I'm a state oil and gas entity, is my pivot dependent on oil prices being high? If oil prices are low, can I pivot if I don't have that money? And then how does my government incent me to make this pivot? And I'll say a bunch of the analysis that's come out of the center around state-owned enterprises also highlights uh, to something you were pointing out, Amy, which is these different incentive structures. Um, So you look at a coal plant, and if you were to build a coal plant in the U.S., why you wouldn't do that right now, or in Western Europe, these types of things. But it's like, why are other countries still building them? And what is the incentive structure? What's the payback? I mean, these... The economics are different. The markets are different. And so understanding those differences, because as you say, we got to keep the lights on today and keep the lights on as countries are developing and need more energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, while phasing out. Well, in some cases, if you're looking at peaking your emissions in a few decades or two decades, you still might build a new coal facility. That still might actually be a rational choice. And so understanding that And then responding in kind when it comes to policy and regulation and negotiations and diplomacy is really, really important. Um, Just understanding those market differences. So you're talking about energy security in the current crisis and the importance of keeping the lights on, which I think is an excellent segue into the second big subject I wanted to talk about on this podcast, which is nuclear power and in particular nuclear's role in providing reliable supply while tackling climate change. Every time we talk about low carbon energy uh, and we don't mention nuclear power, we always get a flood of emails and messages from people saying, hey, what about nuclear? You're neglecting it. And I think that's possibly 
affair. And we're actually planning reasonably soon a nuclear special, because I think there's a lot of issues about nuclear that it would be good to kind of dig into in a lot of detail. But before we do, I just wanted to raise the question of nuclear COP27 on the kind of discussions that have been had about it. I thought it was interesting. We just find this quote. So Fatih Birol, who's the executive director of the International Agency, Energy Agency, he said, nuclear is making a comeback. I think his reasoning being that, given soaring fossil fuel prices that we've had this year, given huge concerns about energy security. And there's a few kind of interesting examples that we've seen at COP27 of um, announcements and things that are going on that um, would kind of support the sense of renewed interest in nuclear power. France is giving a billion euros for South Africa to help develop nuclear power there to replace its coal-fired plants. We've had um, the US saying it's uh, lending $3 billion to Romania for development of nuclear plants there and so on. It seems to be also just beyond those specific substantive things, quite a lot of chat and talk about nuclear power, partly about advanced nuclear, new generation of small modular reactors and so on, and the promise that they hold, but also actually just about um, current kind of conventional nuclear plants and the role that they can play. Melissa, how do you see it? Do you see this kind of uh, revival of interest, nuclear comeback that people are talking about? Is that a real thing? I think the conversation has shifted, yeah. Um, and that's just something really real I've observed. And I would couch it in kind of three buckets. One is, you know, what is happening within the U.S. when you talk about, Ed, you alluded to it, like these small modular reactors, kind of the advanced advance, the, the next next step in terms of new reactor designs. I'll say also in the U.S., interesting announcements coming out about Vogel. Let's talk. We could talk about Vogel at some point. Yeah, we should, which we should do. Now you've mentioned Vogel. I'm not gonna <laughs> I did. Let I you skate over it that quickly. Yeah. So go on. Uh, explain what, what what is Vogel and why is it interesting? Vogel, um, big nuclear power facility that had some pretty famous cost overruns, might be about to come online and be producing electricity. It's in Georgia, isn't it? Yes, in Georgia. Georgia, as in the U.S. state, not the country. Yep. Yes, Ed, it's in the state of Georgia. It was part of this initiative, you know, with the federal government saying, we're going to back the build out of new reactors. We need this clean power. How do we do that? Vogel ran into some pretty well-discussed, well-trodden um, topics around cost overruns and how can we build nuclear affordably or at least on cost, on time, on budget, you know, here in the United States. But the bottom line is these new reactors are, they're projecting in service dates in 2023. So um, first quarter for unit three and the fourth quarter for unit four. So getting those new units up online. And so they should be putting new electricity into the system. A big moment, as you say, that's kind of uh, long awaited, that start of generation of Vogel. When that finally happens, that is going to be pretty significant. Although it's a bit of a one-off, right? Because it's the only new pair of reactors of that kind being built in the US right now. Well, and so here's the interesting question. In the US... What does the investment tax credits and the structure under the um, Inflation Reduction Act actually mean for future nuclear power? Like the numbers we run, I mean, it's not the free, you know, uh, Val Kilmer, cold fusion, free energy for everyone vision um, that, you know, I, I come back to in my mind sometimes, but it's extremely cheap. And in a system where we do need firm, clean power to keep the overall reliability and affordability of a power sector, you know, going. This is a really interesting one because nuclear is one of the few tools in our toolbox, especially if 
we're still in a place where we're not fully leaning into the carbon capture picture, or some states might not like that, et cetera. There's just not that many tools. What I will say is the other bucket I think of is internationally. And I'm thinking about the announcement that came out with the U.S. and Poland. And Poland was such a huge focus of our work when we looked at Europe when I was at the International Energy Agency and then when I was based in the U.K. doing work there about how the overall transition was going to look like in Western Europe. And every single time we talked about emissions reductions, it was like Poland. Okay, Poland. They're not going to tie into Russia for natural gas because they're worried about security concerns. Well, here we are. Um, so what are the options for getting off coal? I believe it's 70% of the electricity in the country comes from coal right now. And, you know, they have all the air pollution problems that you would assume with that and other things, but the high greenhouse gas emissions. And so nuclear, um, is an interesting option for them. And so there was a big announcement that came out, uh, from the department of energy. So Poland and the U S announced a strategic partnership around launching Poland's civil nuclear fleet. And they're talking about, you know, Westinghouse and Bechtel being involved. So these are really experienced, we know how to build this stuff, organizations. And the vision for it is to put, I believe there's a total of six units in Poland, first three in phase one, another three in the next phase um, in northeastern Poland. And this is this is a huge deal. Like the idea of actually deploying existing known technologies into that system to get coal off the system, to phase out, phase down, I believe was the term that came out of Glasgow, but to get coal out of the system is big. And so we can talk about the US and we can focus here and we can talk about small modular reactors, but I'm actually looking at all these other big announcements that you alluded to, um, Ed, which are what will be built in the near term and what could be practically done in the next seven years, so between now and 2030. And that does seem very compelling. And as you say, for a country like Poland, wanting to get off coal and also not rely on Russian gas, the arguments do seem overwhelming, except for the cost, I always think. And that is the thing which, as you say, Vogel, which has zoomed so far over budget, blasted, um, has taken such a long time beyond its planned schedule to get completed. It does look like nuclear is, in general, a very expensive way of providing low carbon energy, particularly when you compare it to modern uh, costs for solar and wind. So a question, how do you justify it? I would say you can't compare wind, solar, and nuclear directly in saying, oh, the cost of a kilowatt hour from one is the same as the cost of a kilowatt hour from another. This is the idea. I don't care about the cost of an individual kilowatt hour. I care about the cost of electricity over the course of a year, what my bills are going to be in my house. And the research shows time and time and time again that you want at least one source of firm electricity in your system. So 24-7 dispatchable energy in your system. And so we want all the things. Nuclear is one of them. So it's not nuclear or solar. They actually are like different. And I, I know we talk about on the podcast that I do at the center about how it's like building a soccer team and you need different types of players and renewables are your strikers. Your firm dispatchable power that's your defenders. like, And you want defenders. You want people who are really good at defending. And then energy storage is your midfield, if, if anyone missed that. Um, but you want all these things. Otherwise, you have a really expensive or ineffective team. And that's not good for anyone. So yes, solar and wind deploy a ton of it when it makes sense. But you got to have the firm. You got to have the other stuff too. Also, we need to rearrange how we do levelized costs. And I, I talked to some big developers and they're starting to do this. So you know, it's all well and good to say, you know, here's the cost, levelized cost of this or that. But then tell me how many years 
of extended life of that facility are you factoring in when you make that levelized cost? Because we've got nuclear plants operating, you know, upwards of 40, 50 years. And we have, um, when you're talking about solar, I got to restore uh, and refurbish some of the panels after, you know, a certain number of years. Uh, if I'm talking about battery facilities, you know, how, when do I have to change out those batteries and what will that change out cost me? Right. So people are starting to really rethink, you know, what formula they use for levelized costs. If I'm saying that the levelized cost for a coal, for a natural gas peaking plant is really low, am I really, is that really true? Because how many years are you planning for that plant to be operating at, at 90% capacity? And maybe in after a certain number of years, it's going to be at a much lower level of utilization. And maybe it's going to retire 10 years earlier than you originally had in your calculation. So I do think that some of these sort of rule of thumb costs and even the you know, Georgia experience with Vogel, like we have to rethink that, right? And we have to look at um, how long is this plant going to operate? What's it going to cost me? Um, and then, and how do I factor that into levelized cost calculations and future levelized cost calculations? But before we move on in this nuclear discussion or say goodbye, uh, let me just bring up a lucky fact for Poland because they're building this nice, shiny nuclear plant to replace coal inside the borders of NATO. And so they don't have to worry about, hopefully, someone attacking them and then making their nuclear plant become a dangerous asset, uh, as we've seen in Ukraine with Europe's largest nuclear plant. Um, and, you know, you know, ugly statistics. 40% of global enrichment capacity today is with Rosatom, the Russian state uh, nuclear entity. Um, we've got, uh, of the 52 new reactors uh, under construction worldwide, you know, 21 of them are using Russian technology. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think this sort of geopolitical question goes beyond just the costs of nuclear, you know, and goes beyond the traditional, you know, Oh, what if there's an earthquake safety concern? Because we have to think about um, what happens in countries if we have unusual circumstances like a war and we have a lot of dependence on nuclear power. Yeah, that is very interesting. And I do agree that is definitely an issue. Just to pick you up on a point, you said of the 52 reactors under construction worldwide, that's the 52 reactors under construction outside China, presumably, is it? No, that's the 52 reactors under construction outside Russia actually. Includes China. Includes China. Good grief. Yeah. Wow. So these okay. are reactors. And, and the Russians are actually building some of the reactors in China, India, and Turkey. But it also includes places like Bangladesh, Egypt, and, and so forth. Uh, the Russian industry is very active globally. Yeah, that is really interesting. And at a time when we're obviously hypersensitized to discussions about energy security and which countries our energy supplies come from, that's got to be a consideration. Absolutely. And so I'll say this is why in May, I believe it was, we published a report talking about reducing Russian involvement in Western nuclear power markets and like highlighting how while Russia may not be the primary producer of, you know, raw uranium, how involved they are in the entire value chain. And I think it's interesting, the Department of Energy made their announcement for the first ever domestic production of HALU, so advanced fuel for advanced nuclear reactors, 
being in the U.S. So they made that announcement um, about the cost share on that. And so it's a $150 million cost share, I believe. And this is showing how we are leaning into the fact that it's not just about the reactors once they're operating, it's about the whole, value, the whole value chain for them. So where are they coming from? How are we training the workforce? How are we getting the fuel? What are we doing to set things up to address some pretty real energy security concerns when it comes to the future of current and future advanced reactors? Yeah, that is um, really fascinating. I think, unfortunately, we should leave it there. But as I've said, we're definitely planning a nuclear special edition of the Energy Gang. We've been talking about this amongst ourselves for many, many months now. Now I've actually confessed it openly in public. That means we're actually going to have to go ahead and do it, I think. So definitely watch this space. We will be back with a nuclear special, perhaps arranged in some slightly different ways. And we're going to dig into all of these issues in a bit more depth when we do that. Now, the only thing that really remains is our uh, free electrons. Amy, what do you uh, want to talk about? What's your free electron? Well, I want to do a follow-up on a previous free electron and tell the story. So a previous free electron I had was that I went to charge my new electric car at a fast charger. A lot of the fast chargers were needing repair, and I tweeted it. And then people tweeted to me that there should be a policy, that they have to be kept in good repair, and so on and so forth. So I do want to confess that the state of Connecticut has taken up that mantle. And there is now a law in the state of Connecticut that has a requirement for how many days, within how many days does a charging station company have to repair its facilities. Um, And so I'm sad to say that I went to a charging station in Connecticut and um, and twice there was a long line of people needing to charge their cars because a company was not complying with the state rules hey, or repair. Yeah. So yeah. that brings up this, you know, very interesting question. You know, as we are transitioning infrastructure in some places where there's going to be a lot of charging stations, are we going to have trouble finding a gasoline station or vice versa? You know, if we're just emerging with all these charging stations that are going to come under the IRA legislation, you know, our state's going to put in these requirements for how much they have to be maintained um, and with, you know, deadlines and and commitments. So uh, that's my free electron. I tweeted the company again and told them their stations were down and they answered me again and said they would be fixing them. And they're in breach of the law. They are in breach of the law. Mm. So interesting to see whether that extra incentive means they do actually get them fixed more quickly. I'll tell you the next time I go to charge my car. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Check it out and, and report back. Please do. Um, Melissa, what's yours? Um, so I'll just say really quick in response to yours, Amy, after you mentioned your issues charging that one day where it was like three of the four or something of the chargers were out of order and you had to wait so long to charge and it was just uh, not good. Um, it inspired me to kick up an episode idea we had for the big switch um, higher. And we published an episode called EV charging stations have an equity problem that talks about the development really of the EV charging infrastructure maintenance teams. And there's this really cool company in California that's leaning into it and saying, how do we develop these opportunities and make sure that the workforce supporting them across all the 50 states is an equitable one brings in, you know, folks that look like the mishmash of folks we have all over the country. So anyway, um, that's not my free electron though, Ed. I've got two quick ones. The first one's super quick. I have now saved in just fuel savings over $200 from having an electric vehicle. That does not include maintenance. That is just that if I filled up at the pump, 
versus plugging in mostly at my home. But I will say we would have saved more money, but I used some superchargers because we were doing some local Texas trips and local in Texas is not that close. So we definitely super far. (laughs) Even visiting family. I mean, I'm definitely using the fast chargers occasionally. So we pay a lot more for that, but it's still cheap and it's still a saving. So I, I love the stats that I'm gathering on our electric vehicle. And are you working out when your payback is going to be? So so if you're saving, then suppose these are average months. So this is $100 a month, $1,200 a year. How long before you've paid back the extra cost of an EV compared to buying a, a gasoline engine vehicle? I guess it shows you how my brain works, Ed. My calculations are more focused on when did it become free to buy the car? Like how long do I have to own the car to actually make the car free because I'm saving on fuel? And this is a a whole host of of equity discussions to have around this one, you know, in terms of I can afford to have a long payback and da, da, da. But um, that's more where I'm focused on. And so I'm going to come back after I have six to 12 months of data because my seasonal usage is going to be really different. So after like the holidays when I'm actually driving more versus just you know, kind of everyday runs. I want to see what the data say at that point. That's what I'm I'm looking forward to because I think that'll be really interesting. And back to the financing question, introduce some interesting financing discussions around how we get more EVs on the road. Sorry, that was supposed to be short. My long free electron is actually a cop around everything we were talking about earlier. One of the big announcements I'm incredibly proud of the center for making is around our energy opportunity lab which we have been working on in the background for a couple of years now. And it was really exciting to launch um, the lab at COP to announce it, to talk about what we're planning and what we now have the foundational funding to do, thanks to some very generous gifts. Um, And so around that, we have work that's being done domestically in the U.S., and then internationally, so around the world, and predominantly these highly developing low-income economies to improve the opportunities for sustainable energy inclusion, innovation, growth, all of this in a way that supports prosperity and improved health, et cetera. So I'm tremendously proud of the team. It was a massive team effort, lots of incredible folks at the table to help us think about what this what this should look like and um, just thrilled that we got to announce it. So there's more information on our website, but excited to dive into that work with the team. It's really great. And it's been a long time coming, so I'm just so delighted <laughs> that it's out there now. Yeah, that does sound fantastic. Congratulations on, on getting that done. And as you say, I'll definitely go and check it out on the website. So my free electron is something I took part in last week. It was a webinar on management issues in the energy transition. One of the things I am absolutely fascinated by in the energy transition is the very, very basic practicalities of it in terms of, so you were talking a bit, talking about COP27, about the money, about redeploying capital and how that gets deployed to low carbon energy technologies and so on. I also think it's fascinating and really important to think about the people and how people who have been working in high carbon energy industries can be redeployed towards lower carbon energy industries. And it's obviously not always the case that it's kind of directly individuals changing from one role to another. But actually, often it can be. And in particular, when we're thinking about, talk about the just transition, about having a transition that does not hurt some groups and individuals disproportionately, and a transition that people are going to buy into and that is going to get support because people can see it's not personally damaging to their own interests. And so, as I say, this webinar that I was on last week was about sort of management issues inside oil and gas companies and what they need to do as they transition towards 
having more low carbon energy if they're doing hydrogen or carbon capture and storage or renewable energy or whatever it might be. I just think it's a subject that doesn't get nearly enough attention. And in general, as an economy, as a society, I think we're really bad at helping people transition through shocks. If it's the impact of globalization and increased trade, if it's the impact of changing technology and automation, often those things have devastating effects on communities. They may make the economy in general better off, but for specific individuals, specific groups, they can be very damaging. And we do a really, really bad job. And I say we, meaning perhaps us here in the United States, where we are now, but actually developed economies in general. I think probably the world in general does a really bad job of helping people adjust to those kind of shocks. And I think the transition to low carbon energy is absolutely one of those kind of shocks where much more should be done to help people make that transition. And I think thinking about those human factors and the very personal and individual practicalities of what it means to be in an industry that is going through a transition is something we should be paying a lot more attention to. So as I say, I was glad to get a chance to talk about it last week and and definitely it's something I think that uh, we should be talking a lot about a lot more in the future. Let's say, Ed, I've been learning a lot from the state of Colorado in terms of how we like transition communities and their approach to it here lately. And just want to echo what you're saying about how we can do these global generalizations. I mean, we got to realize that there are winners and losers and there's tough decisions that are being made. And the answer is not just, okay, fine, that's just what it's going to be. The answer is to understand them, to lean into them and to engage um, so that we cannot have folks, often of whom who are already on the edge, going over that edge. That's not that's not the answer. Um, so just been reading a lot about that in the background. I think it's a great one to bring up. Absolutely. And as you say, it's not a question of just saying, oh, well, it's too difficult and it would be too terrible for all these people. Therefore, we can't do anything. But it's about saying there are real problems here and we need to find real solutions. It's clear not enough is being done, though. There's, there's certainly much more that could be and should be done as the transition progresses. So we do unfortunately have to leave it there, but thank you both very much indeed for coming along. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Ed. And thank you, Melissa. Thanks, Ed. It was great to hang out with you and Amy for a bit and to talk through everything that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Always great, great fun to talk. I know we'll be seeing each other again soon. Um, thanks to our producers, uh, Shakira Perez and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And most of all, many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering are always very welcome. We're still on Twitter for the time being. We're at The Energy Gang and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. I think we're going to stay there for a while. As you probably know, since Elon Musk's takeover, Twitter has become a slightly wild and woolly kind of a place. As I say, I think we're sticking around for the time being. So do let us know what you think through that medium we'll probably open up on some other things we may well uh, get to mastodon i guess there seems to be a lot of people moving on to mastodon perhaps by the time we're on next we will have opened a mastodon account so join us again in a couple of weeks when we'll be back with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition until then goodbye <laughs>